tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. Uh, g'day, Macca. It's Des. How you going? Good, thanks, Desi. I'm a truck driver. I'm uh, travelling back to Melbourne at the moment. Um, I've just passed uh, Violet Town, so I'm just on my way back home. Uh, been uh, pretty good through the pandemic, had lots of work, but uh, as most truckies have, just got to say I love your program. Uh, every time I work on the weekend, I try to listen to it. I love uh, driving through the country and seeing everything and seeing how things progress and, you know, seeing there's heaps of animals in the field, which is good. Hey, Mega, it's Wombat. How you going? Oh, good, Wombat. What are you doing, mate? Um, at the moment, I'm on a fork truck and I'm putting heaps of plums away in the tool room. And talking about Australia all over, I think I've told you before, I've been doing this for over 30 years in the fruit industry. I've worked down the mile down the mines. I've worked on the prawning boats. I've driven road trains up in Northern Territory. This particular doing the fruit industry, I've been doing it for 35 years. And I've got friends all over the world that I've met that do this sort of thing. Yeah, it's just good people. And I don't know why they're scared to pick it. Like, I'm 75. I'm still going, working seven days a week. I started this morning at five, probably finished about three or four this afternoon. We'll keep going till about March. And then we'll get in the plant and new trees and get ready for next year. Switch on and lie back in bed. The city That's what you call getting it done. The farmer in the pot, they love it all over Australia. There's a radio show that Australians all know. If you're rich or you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast timeless land and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. I will do. Good morning and welcome to the program. Uh, And welcome to me and welcome to you if you've just got up. It's nice to have your company. My correspondent, Hilda, writes about all sorts of things. She says, I've often wondered why South Australia and Western Australia are so named. That is, South Australia and Western Australia. And for consistency, why New South Wales was not called Eastern Australia and Queensland, Northeastern Australia. Creative naming must have been in short supply in the old days. At least Victoria has a name that sounds reasonable. The ACT and the Northern Territory come off as blandly as South Australia and Western Australia. Look, I don't know. What would you like to call them? The other thing she says, this miserable, humid weather has me stonkered. There's a word you don't hear every day, she says. Stonkered. Hilda, no, but my mum used to say that. I'd say, um, I'd turn up and say, Mum, how are you? And she'd say, I'm stonkered. <laughs> anyway, a lot of mail to catch up on. This is from Peter J. Longhurst. He's from Cronulla, New South Wales. He says, I turned on the TV this morning. This is while we're on holidays. Um, I turned on the TV this morning ostensibly to watch the Test Cricket, but my television was set to the ABC and I found myself watching a church service commemorating the life of Michael Jeffrey, our former Governor-General. As I was listening to reflections on his life, it reminded me of the times he used to call you on Sunday morning from his backyard at Yarralumla. I clearly remember his first call and I thought, what a nice man. I think it was the second call some weeks, maybe months later, that you twigged to his identity and he gave himself up because he was involved in lots of things, but especially soil and the quality of our soil in Australia and doing things to improve it. Pete Longhurst says, this is a wonderful memory for me as I reflect as to what other country in the world would such a high-ranking person ring a radio presenter for a chat. 
He seemed like a thoroughly charming individual and we were fortunate to have him as the Queen's rep. And he will be missed, says Peter Longhurst. He certainly will, Pete. That's for sure. Hi, Mac, says Dr Liz. I'm just in Wallumbilla, driving to Charleville for two weeks' work as a locum GP to give the local doctors a break over Christmas and New Year. I live in Brisbane and only do rural and remote locums every couple of months. I love it. I work for Queensland Health, Queensland Country Practice. They are great. Happy New Year. And speaking of doctors, Graeme Ryder says, um, I was listening to you talking with Dr Ross. Can you please put the message out to Dr Ross and your followers that Burnett Heads, which is 15 k's out of Bundaberg, needs a GP doctor. There are consultation rooms waiting for a doctor at the shopping centre. Many thanks, says Graeme. And Ken Lindsay, Chainsaw, says, We've been travelling along the Murray recently and have never seen so much hay stored in paddocks, millions of bales, some as far as the eye can see, wheat and barley everywhere. Look, sometimes people send me things like socks, a pair of socks and a scarf, and they're really nice. This came in from, I think it's just A, from Red Bank in Victoria. Enjoy listening to the program, says A. This scarf, which I knitted for you, has a great history. Sheep shorn in Victoria, wool gets sent to a big factory in Tasmania, gets tanned and dyed, then through to a big factory in Bendigo, named Bendigo Woolen Mills. I buy the wool, voila, your scarf. And I also wanted to know about the Tongala Milk Factory. And she says that, uh, because that's up for sale, it was sold by Nestle. She says the carnation evaporated milk story is, they don't make it anymore. And she said, I bought some uh, latterly after the closure and she said it was made in Mexico. Didn't like the taste at all. I tried it. I wrote to Bega and asked them maybe they can make a similar product under another name, but Bega has not written back to me yet, says A. She's in um, Red Bank in Victoria. I thought you would like to know these things, Ian, as I do. A, I certainly do. A Weber is her name. And speaking of people who knit, this came in a while ago too, but I love it, I love it, I love it. From Lorraine Brinkman. She's in Pemberton in Western Australia. And it sort of encapsulates what I think about making things. Remember I told you about Arthur Miller who wrote Death of a Salesman and other things and was married famously to Marilyn Monroe, but I remember reading in his book where he said um, he was in his shed tinkering away making stuff out of wood and bits and pieces and he'd made an ashtray or something and at the end of the day he looked at it and he said, well, see, that didn't exist before today. And I think it's similar for people who knit. Lorraine Brinkman says, please find and close a pair of socks, which I knitted because I'm not good at writing poetry. (laughs) like so many of your listeners, and I didn't think I would do justice by painting gumboots, but I can knit. And when I came across a pattern with model wearing gumboots, I thought I'd tell you why I knit, says Lorraine, you little ripper. I was looking for something to do and came across a lady who knitted lush-looking, colourful socks. I had never knitted socks before and had to learn what to do. I remember my mum knitting socks for us when we were kids. No mean feat with six children. I remembered also that my mother told me that my grandmother worked in a knitting mill that made socks after the war. That was in Carlton, in Victoria. And of course, it's not there anymore. It's been added to the long list of things like Eskimo pies. I've decided that knitting is an important and clever thing to do. It requires learning and is something that can be done almost anywhere, anytime, and you end up with something at the end of it. I use any opportunity now to give a pair of hand-knitted socks to family and friends because it's something I enjoy doing, and I think it generally means more to the recipient than something machine-made, says Lorraine. Lorraine, that's just that's lovely. The socks are lovely and the letter is lovely and might inspire people to 
not only to knit, but maybe to knit or to crochet, but or to make stuff like blokes do in the men's shed. G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. Welcome back in 2021, mate. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, that whole year. Where did 2020 go? It was like a bad dream, wasn't it? <laughs> it's been better dreams, Macca. Yeah, yeah I'll say. So, <laughs> uh, what's your name? Uh, sorry, Richard Clark from uh, down at the Westaway Berry Farm in Tasmania. Oh, right. There you go, Richard. What's happening there? Uh, just just um, loading up uh, 50 tonnes of uh, black currants. To, to head down to the Cascade factory down in Hobart, South Hobart, to get juice tomorrow morning. 50 tonnes? Yeah. <laughs> God, that's a lot of... Uh, what are they called? Black currants? Black currants. Black yeah. currants. We're, um, we're, we're the last commercial growers in the country, Macca. So uh, 50 tonnes sounds like a lot, but um, now it was only about seven, eight years ago we used to go 300 tonnes and... and you know, Tasmania as a whole used to grow thousands of tons of things. And what, so, hap- and what happened? Uh, look, the, 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 the market for juice um, you know, went, went down and down and down. There was more imported blackcurrants. You, you can get blackcurrants cheaper from, from Eastern Europe. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of brands went that way. Uh, Cascade luckily never did and kept with Australian or, or Tasmania because you can only grow blackcurrants in Tassie. We're the only place cold enough and silly enough to grow them. Mm. Um, and... Um, yeah, so, so the market just kept, kept kept sliding year after year, and we, we we stuck at it, and still have them, and and this is the first year we actually started replanting them, which is quite nice. So they're mostly used. I, t- I tell you what, I bought a little packet of stuff the other day, nuts and bits yeah. and pieces in it, and it yeah. had did it have black currants in it or something? It had something like that in in it. So, so, so sometimes people get uh, currants, which other people call raisins. Confused with black currants, so they're, they're, they're dried grapes. No, these 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 weren't um cur- they, they weren't currants. I don't think they. Okay. Um, well, they, 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 they they could have been dried black currants and dried black car- black currants dry really well. They freeze really freeze dry really well. Yeah. Um. So so you might have, but I, I, I'd say unfortunately they they might have been from elsewhere in the world. Uh huh. Potentially, uh, unless they had a big Australian kangaroo on the back with um with a yellow bar that said 100% Australian grass. No, it said uh, the the um 51% Australian content it said. So that's <laughs> I bought it. It was just like little nuts and bits and pieces and chocolate and uh, and stuff in it, you know, and um and nuts and various sorts of nuts and it had these little currants what I yeah. I call currants but they might have been black. They were sort of reddy color actually or not reddy. Might have been cranberries, might they? I don't know. You'd know a black currant because they're jet black Mm. and full of antioxidants and anthracyanins. They're about they're they're nature's unsung superfood that no one really knows knows about. No, exactly. um, But yeah, juice juice predominantly maca, just because they've got really high levels of acid. So they're pretty bitter. If you if you put a black currant raw in your mouth, Uh. you'd have a pretty you'd have a pretty puckered up face afterwards. Um, so, so, so they don't, you don't, you don't find them really fresh, and they've only got a really short season as well, so it makes it hard for a fresh market. So we used to grow thousands of tons, and now it's down to what five hundred tons, and that's it, that's it. Uh, no, it's 50, 50. Uh, 50. But we're, we're going to try, we're going to try and get it up back up to five hundred tons. Oh, five hundred um, tons. Yeah, yeah. yeah but um, once upon a time, like in in the Derwent Valley of Tasmania, like up on the hills, the scrubby sort of bushland hills, every every little farmer used to have an acre of. Black currants and an acre of raspberries and an acre of hops, and and they'd they'd, they'd, they'd keep their family members because people used to have big families back then, pretty busy all the way through from December through till sort of March. 
So um, it, it, it's a very traditional thing in Tasmania. To, so to, to, so it, how do you pick them? Do you pick them machine-wise or by hand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so back in the 60s, they were all hand-picked and terribly time-consuming thing to do. Um, but now we've got um, we've got big machines. We've automated it so that we're now, now a bit competitive in the world market, I suppose, for, mm. for, for black currants. Um, and and we, we have you know, three people on the back of the machine sorting them. Uh, my uncle Randall drives it every every year, and uh, yeah, about about a week of the year, the, the second week in January, they all come on and we we, we rip them all off at one go, <laughs> and then we send them down to the the, the fruit plant at uh, Cascade each uh, year and get them get it, get them concentrated. So well, it's, it's nice to have that connectivity and continuity, I suppose. Yeah, well, look, keep up the good work, Richard, and it's great to hear a lovely Australian story. I hope you get your tonnage up and. Yeah, it's a pity we can't uh, find other uses for it and other people who want um, Tassie uh, black currants, mate. But um, keep up the good work, oh, Richard. Well, we'll keep, keep your eyes out. And if you if you are ever down in uh, Tassie, uh, Macker, I'd, I'd love to see your face after you eat a, a, a black carrot fresh. Well, when we can get across... Can we get across the border? I'm not sure. Um, you, you, you can. Tassie opened up, uh, thankfully, uh, last week to, to the rest of the country. So we're fully open now. Oh, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Yeah. Good on you, Richard. Good Great on, to talk to you, mate. And have a great 2021, Macca. You too. And keep in touch. Cheers, mate. Good luck today. Bye. Uh, And on the line, I hope, is our uh, American correspondent, um, Kieran Kelly. uh, Report from America. Good morning, Kieran. Yeah, hello, Ian. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you, mate. Good, thank you. Uh, You're in... Well, tell us where you are. Uh, well, I'm actually at the mountain uh, at the moment, sitting on top of a mountain um, just outside the town or the small village of Park City in Utah, which is on the western edge of the Rockies. We had a huge blizzard last night, and it might blizzard again by the look of the weather here. But it's a, it's a beautiful scene. It's about minus two, and it has been very still. But I think we've got a big storm coming. Yeah, I've heard. Well, we've all heard about uh, America. Um, we've heard about the rest of the world. Um, What's it like uh, living uh, in Utah or living in America in, in times like these? Well, Ian, I can only describe it as tumultuous. I've been here for six weeks, and as you know, I've been to America many times before, and uh, the two big issues, of course, that uh, have occurred since I've been here is COVID, you know, coming to an Australian family, uh, coming to grips with COVID and raising two small children in the middle of a dreadful epidemic and also the storming of the Capitol and the inauguration of the new president. So um, it's almost impossible to describe how bad COVID is here. I mean, you and I and your listeners have all lived through it uh, for 12 months, and I suppose I thought I understood it when I came here, but I really had no idea. Australia, uh, Scott Morrison said Australia's just got through stage three. Well, I don't think we've even had stage one yet. And if you want... If you want a description of it, uh, Utah itself, uh, it's about half the size of Melbourne. It's got about three million people, but it's the same size as, as uh, Victoria. So think of somewhere the size of Victoria, but with only half the number of people. And we're clocking about three and a half to 5,000 cases a day, every day. And uh, you know, I think Melbourne at its worst had about 800 Um there's been 600, uh, 1,600 deaths in Utah since this started compared to about 900 in the totality of Australia. So if you want to see an epidemic, this is an epidemic. And 
it's really having the most catastrophic effects here, really. And is this because I remember um, we had a, a doctor bloke ring us from, from Miles, I think his name was John, uh, late last year, and he said he had some friends over there and he said they'd given up trying to warn um, people and uh, when they left the hospital working with uh, patients with COVID and stuff. Uh, but he said... Uh, they just refuse to wear masks, um, and that's one of the one of the reasons. I heard something about um, New York the other day. I mean, you hear all sorts of stories, but um, is that is, oh, that, look, is that, look, look, the reality is it's a lot more complex than that. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people over here, a lot of doctors, ex-politicians, uh, as I do, and um, Australia is extremely fortunate. I was talking to an ex-policeman the other day. I was out here in the mountains, and I bumped into him, and he knew all about Australia. And our COVID experience, he said, the lucky thing for Australia is you've got hard borders. You're an island, and that saved you. He said, think of the United States. He said, even if we could close the borders, we don't really have a border with Mexico. If we close that, people just swim across the river. And he told me how porous the Canadian border is, that people can just walk into America if they close the road borders. So they've found it extremely difficult. The other thing is we've got six states, six states. States. And as you saw, we can't get the premiers to agree on anything. Well, here they've got 50 states. Can you imagine trying to get 50 premiers to agree on anything? But they're deeply partisan and they're looking after their own patch and so on and so forth. So the other thing, the curious thing, and I was talking to a truck driver the other day. Uh, we went for a drive down south. And you pull into a truck stop anywhere in America, there's 50 long haul trucks there from all over the country and I got talking to this bloke and he said well I started in New York about three nights ago and I went to I think he he went to Louisiana somewhere like that he was heading for Texas and he'd be up in in uh, California the following day and that's one truck that's one truck and they're going there's 100,000 trucks on the road at any time so uh, an epidemic gets transported around the country like America with open borders much more easily than it does in Australia. So there's no one simple explanation for it. But the reality, Ian, is Americans and Australians are very, very different, and all the Americans agree to this. Uh, Australia is an individual nation, and America is a nation of individuals. And this is a terribly difficult country to govern. Well, I suppose it's the same. In, yeah, I, I suppose it's the same in Europe. I'm, I remember a bloke uh, rang me and said, oh, "My father's just motorcycled across Europe, and all he needed was his license to go, you know, through Spain, Portugal, Italy, whatever, um, on a motorbike." I suppose it's been the same over there. Although, um, yeah, they they don't seem to have had much uh, success in in countering it, do they? No, well, the problem here is there's a deep suspicion with government that goes right back to the formation of the the uh, the American Federation under Jefferson and Franklin. When they wrote the Constitution, they were terrified of oppression and had had enough of monarchies. They saw what happened in England and France after the French Revolution, and they wanted individual rights. They wanted people to be free and to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and they wrote that in the Constitution. And Americans believe that. So I've seen Americans here, they just, the government tells them to do something, they just won't do it. And if you take one example, contact tracing, all the Americans know that Australia had contact tracing and it, it was, it's been very successful. And they said, 
several have said to me, you can imagine telling Americans that the government wants to know where they are, who they're talking to and where they've been. <laughs> they said, good, good, good luck with trying to get that organised. They said it's a fantastic idea, but Americans just wouldn't do it. Yeah. They just wouldn't do it. So um, we don't have the same suspicion and distrust of government as they do here. Uh, and I, I don't know why, you know, Victoria, New South Wales, uh, you saw the Northern Beaches incident. When, when, when government tells us that it's a good idea if we do something and imposes limits like you can't stand on the beach in groups at Manly, we do it. I did it. And, you, you know, it's, it's very difficult to describe until you see. I saw it yesterday. I went up for a quick ski yesterday afternoon. And there was this nice old chap, he was a volunteer, COVID volunteer, and everyone's supposed to have masks on. And there was this bloke, big American bloke in the line, and the fellow said to him, would you mind putting your mask up over your face, please? And this fellow just went nuts. Don't you tell me what to do. If I don't want to wear a mask, I'm not going to. And he said, sir, excuse me, it's the law. And this fellow said, I don't care if it's the law. I'm not going to do it. So what do you, what do, you do? Exactly. And how are you faring? I mean, are you, are you um, trepidatious? Are you scared? I mean, I, I would be. Uh, what are you yeah, doing? Yeah, look, we're fol- we, we are, because it's worse than I thought when I got over here, there is a great fear, uh, and we're being extremely careful. Uh, but I'm very involved with getting the boys to school every day, getting them home, managing them. That's my number one priority. We don't go out. We don't socialise. It's too dangerous uh, because there's too many people unmasked. And, you know, the restaurants are open and you, you, the bars are open. You can go out if you want to. But, uh, but we, we aren't. We're trying to stay safe. And my daughter's over here to pursue a career. And that's why I've come over to help her uh, because they've been locked down now for eight months. They haven't managed to meet anyone they they can't socialise. They're in a new country where they don't know anybody, and my daughter hasn't even met most of the people she works with. So it's a lonely experience, and 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 both the, my daughter and husband working from home makes it even harder when they're trying to manage two boys. So I'm just trying to help out, and I stay away. All of us do stay away from groups of people, restaurants, and that sort of thing. We're just, you know, we're just trying to survive, really. <laughs> Yeah, well, great to talk to you, Kieran, and um, yeah, look after yourself, and uh, we'll hear from you. You'll be there till when? Till uh, till early April. I've come overseas on the three-month exemption that the federal government announced in November, and uh, so I'll be back in early April. I'll do my two-month quarantine, and uh, well, that's the plan anyway. And uh, so, in the meantime, I'll go. Uh, I'll go and have a swim at Manly for you. Well, <laughs> mate, I miss it, I'll tell you. If you're not living in Australia, Ian, you're not living. Let me tell you that. Good on you, Kieran. Thanks for your report. Okay. Thanks, okay. mate. Thank you. Bye. <whistles> you remember last year on our news bulletin, we talked to a bloke called Ian Anderson. He was at Wild Duck Island um, and he was monitoring flatback turtles who were coming ashore to lay their eggs. And he said, well, look, they'll hatch in uh, sometime in January. I think they've hatched. I'm not sure, but he's on the line uh uh, Ian Anderson, good morning. Hello. Hello. Yeah, Ian? Yeah, good morning, Marco. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, mate. Yourself? Yeah, welcome welcome back for the new year. Thanks very much. Now, um, I've been dying to know about uh, how did the uh, how did the hatching of the flatbacks go? 
Mate, absolutely fantastic. It was such an amazing experience. Uh, Tell they us. were hatching everywhere. I, I had, I just, when Lee rang me yesterday, I just tallied up 5,435 hatchlings we'd actually <laughs> captured and monitored. Wow. How did you? Uh, we, did... Weigh, we weigh them, measure them, and uh, everything, and then release them. Our permit allows us to do that in the space of two hours. Right, and that, so they, they're only little tiny little possums, aren't they? And as you said, I think they, at, at the time, they, um, the survival rate will be very low, but some will survive, of course. Yeah, we, we, well, we certainly hope so, yeah, and keep the species going. But, uh, yeah, one, uh, numbers sort of one in 500, one in 1,000, somewhere there, it's very hard to quantify that. But, uh, yeah, somewhere in that vicinity. So they've got a very... Uh, low chance of coming back to lay in 30 years time basically 30 years time so the, uh, yeah. for, they're they're at sea for 30 years are they before they come yeah. back to and, and what we're trying to find out is where, where they actually go to in that time and what they do where they forage and where they grow up and so on and uh, yeah we wait for them to come back i wish i could be here when they come back but uh, i probably won't be <laughs> Yeah, so uh, when you say you counted them, do you physically count each one? I mean, we 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 do. We physically get every one, and uh, we weigh them, we measure them, and uh, then release them. Yeah, so we have a what we call a drip net set up uh, along the beach in front of where the nests are. Um, only only a section of the beach because the beach we work on is about one point six kilometres, so that's a long stretch of beach to be able to monitor. So we put about two hundred metres of mesh out and. Uh, capture them into buckets, uh, collect them from the buckets, weigh them, measure them, and then release them. And how long How long a period of time does all this take, uh, Ian? Uh, it takes about eight weeks uh, for the hatchlings to, to emerge from when, they, then when the nest is laid. And do they um, all so start they... hatching at the same time and you're running about like a mad thing? or? They're very much. Well, the, the clutch, they hatch within the, uh, the sand. They're about 60 centimetres underneath the sand. Uh, and they all hatch within the nest over a few days. Jeez. When they're all sort of hatched and, you know, they, they consume their egg yolk, uh, they live on that whilst they're in, in the nest. And uh, once they're all ready, they all work their way out. Um, you know, and as the sand drops down between where the eggs have hatched, that builds a platform them for them to actually come out. And they start popping their heads out the top, and then they all systematically come out within a matter of about... Um, Five minutes, I suppose, less than that. They're, they're all out of the nest and right. on their way down the beach. So, and this will happen again next year at the same time? They'll, they'll yeah, come... exactly, the same, exactly the same time, yeah. So we'll go out and we'll do the nesting season again in about November, December, which is the peak of the season. Uh-huh. It goes it goes over from sort of October right through to about April, but, uh, you know, uh, some early ones, some late ones. Uh, in fact, I had about another 30 uh, nesting turtles out there while the hatchlings were actually coming out. So you got big ones coming up and little ones going down. <laughs> what a mighty thing to see. Um, you... oh, it, it is incredible. And I have one that actually dug into a nest that was about to hatch uh, while she was laying her new nest into there. So she disturbed the nest. And there was about 10 hatchlings that were released uh, a little bit earlier than they should have been. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Ian, great work and, and nice to talk to you, mate. And thanks for the good news story. And Yeah, yeah. and look, there's one one particular experience I'd like to share with you if, I, if I've got the time. And that's, um, you uh, probably haven't, but we can do, we've got about 20 seconds. That's, the, uh, that's <laughs> it. Coming up. Well, it was, a, it was a turtle with, a, with an amputated uh, flipper for some reason, and she laid while I was out there. I actually had to dig the nest for her, and then 
I saw those hatchlings actually emerge on the very last night I was out there. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. Good on you, Ian. Great to talk to you. Keep in touch. Will do, Macca. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Good morning, Macca. Sarita Stratton from South Australia. Hi, Sarita. I've been, I've been going to ring you for many, many years, and this morning uh, up early, and you've given your number out a lot, and I thought, oh, maybe you need someone to ring in. So I've rung in. Yeah, good. Good on you. You're exactly right. That's a, We thrive on phone calls, Sarita. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so I start work at eight this morning. I've got a, um, I'm a riding instructor and I have been since uh, 1974. I'm nearly 70. I've been riding since I was four years old. I guess you could say horses have taken up my whole life. Yeah. You don't get a day off from horses. You're always out there feeding or whatever. And my husband and I still teach uh, seven days a week. I'm very busy and I've had a very interesting and diverse riding life, that's for sure. Trained in Europe a lot in the 80s and became very interested in classical riding. We went to Texas six years ago and learned all about training trick horses. Um, Besides all of our experience uh, just in our own lives. I used to work for a wonderful man up north in the mid-north. Um, and used to take tourists out from all peeing a pound. His name was Snow Noble and his wonderful wife, Jean, both have passed on sadly. And Snow wrote a wonderful book. He drove horses and cattle, mobs of cattle all over Australia. Um, You know, those days have all gone now. Uh, I wasn't in his life when that was going on, but one of my jobs was because I looked like a little kid would be to take three or four horses out to stations for the managers or owners to look over and because uh, I was a little kid, they thought the horses were all pretty quiet and good. Mm, not quite. Um, and we'd swap them usually for a dozen unbroken brumbies, bring them back to Auburn near Clare, break them in, send the, 12, the uh, eight best to Adelaide and take off with three or four of the others back up to the stations and do it all again. And when it wasn't so hot during school holidays, my boss Snow had 12, uh, 20 school horses and in the morning, I'd take people out for rides around the outside of the pound, and I would take them through the pound, which, by the way, is 40 square miles in Wilpena Pound, uh-huh. and I could, couldn't tell you how many times I got lost in there, <laughs> and Snow would have to come out looking for me, or the little plane at Rawnsley Bluff Station would go overhead and try and find me with my mob of tourists who would all be saying, Oh, it's getting dark. Oh, we've been out for a long time. Oh, yes, yes. I'm taking you back the scenic route. <laughs> I didn't tell them I was bloody well lost. <laughs> Sorry to tell me this. Um, you've been doing this for a long time, but yeah. was, was last year, uh, was there any um, increase in people wanting to go horse riding or learning uh, to ride a horse um, because um, of the, vi- the virus? Yes, well, a couple of things. One, we don't teach people to ride anymore and haven't for a number of years, even though we've got four amazing school horses. We actually teach adults only, private lessons. People that can already ride might be coming back to it later in life or whatever um, and want to to go on. So insurance has caused a great change in the industry I've been in for years and we were told 30 years ago to stop teaching beginners and children Uh, They've got years before they can decide whether they want to sue you and things like that, which is a bit sad. And to answer your COVID question, um, our colleagues in Victoria, for example, were completely shut down. Um, It it couldn't even take one rider at a time like we do in the indoors or outdoors. I just haven't understood a lot of the COVID 
rules that have come in and gone, but we in South Australia will not stop from teaching, thank God, it would have sent us broke. Um, and yes, we did see, we were very busy then uh, because people couldn't go to gyms, couldn't go um, overseas because a lot of our older riders travel, used to, or used to travel a lot. Um, so we were busy, but I have to say now, and I don't know why, and other you know colleagues of ours are saying the same that uh, things are actually quiet, and they are quiet for us. And after 50 years, you get a pretty good feel uh, in the same business of you know what's normal and what's not normal. So I'm not sure where this COVID thing is going to take us all, no, but we're still bubbling along and um, and uh, have our lovely people that come, and um, we're very lucky with the students we have because they're so keen to learn and so keen to achieve and above all else very keen on the welfare of the horse because in 50 years it's another thing we've seen is the detriment of TAFE pulling out of absolutely all horse training in our state not sure about the other states but you can't train to be a farrier here anymore or a saddler uh, riding instructors, you've always had to train yourself. There's no training for that. Um, studs where you'd go and see the grandparents of the foals and the sisters and brothers, it's all gone to backyard breeding, one or two uh-huh. uh, horses in your backyard, womb for hire sort of thing. You don't see stallions anymore. It's all imported semen. Mm. Um, yeah. It's a very different world in so many ways in my industry. And uh, Olympic Games used to be people that trained their own horse and then competed these days. It's all hired jockeys or riders, uh, all hired trainers and people like Yahoo.com mm. sit up in the gallery having their champers and whatever, <laughs> watching instead of uh, their Formula One racing cars going around, they're watching their Formula One horses. dressage horses <laughs> go around. Sarita, tell me, you went. To, you said you went to Europe and, and learned about classical riding. I'm, I'm not sure what that is, but I had yeah. some letters uh, recent, oh, recently, last year or the year before, about riding side saddle. Do people still yeah. ride side saddle? Yes, I was trained side saddle in Portugal by Maestro Nuno Oliveira, a very famous uh, trainer. We used to go to Portugal to train with him. And uh, the other thing is I have we have thousands of hours of video of all our training and lessons in Europe. And when we moved from one property to another, we built a classical size arena, which is only 15 by 30 metres compared to a uh, competition arena, which is 20 by 60 and it's just such a lovely size arena to train horses and also to train riders and uh, riders that go from us, we well, used to go to Spain and Portugal to train. They're already accustomed to a smaller arena and and classical training. There was no such thing as classical riding until the late 1600s because horses had been completely utilitarian until then. Mm. And then the French, well, actually the Italians started playing with horses in the royal courts and the French king of the time, the Sun King, who also developed ballet. So that's why in classical riding, all the terminology is French. The Germans have tried to hijack it a bit, but uh, it's French. And in fact, my husband's an Olympic level judge and he, with pre-St. George and above, which is international competition, all the tests used to be one side English, the other side French. That probably stopped 20, 30 years ago, but it was the remnants of, you know, where modern day 
dressage supposedly came from, but we're very disappointed. Uh, horses are not ridden with knowledge anymore. They're mostly ridden with with force. You, know? yeah, <laughs> you will bend this way and you will do that. and uh, it's, people, it's made us very sad. But people love their horses, don't they? I know here on Sunday morning we get calls from people with uh, going everywhere to pony club and uh, training and all sorts of things. So the horse is well, very grounding, I think, um, to have a horse and to have the... Um, the benefit of owning a horse and, you know, looking after it and all that sort of stuff, which is, I think, well, really Well, I think it's nice. wonderful training for, you know, children that, you know, whether you're going to wet your pants or not, your horse comes first. That was my training. <laughs> Look after your horse. If you wet your pants, bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> Serena, nice to talk to you this morning. You're uh, ringing from Adelaide. What's it like there this morning? It's absolutely gorgeous, but, of course, we had a big fire near us last Sunday, and uh, that was all... A bit nerve-wracking. It was um, Cuddly, uh, not Cuddly Creek, that was the year before. Um, it was um, Cherry Gardens and Hicks Hill, it was called, and we were very lucky. We got 35 mil of rain and it put it all out. Well, there you go. Sarita, I'll see yeah. you in uh, Adelaide next time I come. I haven't been to Adelaide for ages, too long. We're going to come, you know, with border things and stuff. You don't know where you are, but I think... That things... would be fantastic. Yeah, right. You can take me for a... Well, no, you can... I'll watch you while you... <laughs> you we have to... a beautiful gallery. We have gorgeous horses, highly schooled, and, and it's a lot of fun. And yeah. um, it's well. been fantastic to talk to you, and thank you so much for your wonderful, wonderful show. Thanks, Sarita. I click it on every Sunday morning, and I'm very sad I have to go out and teach at 8 every <laughs> Sunday and can't hear the whole of your show. But keep it up. It's wonderful. And the young man you had on while you are on holidays, also wonderful. All right. Good on you, Sarita. Nice really to talk good. to you. Thank you. All right. Hope you have a good 2021. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Look, each year for the last 10 years at least, uh, we've nominated what we call our Australian All Over of the Year, a person whose contribution to our program and the country we think is exemplary. As an example, one year it was Dr Ross Wilson from Bathurst, and it was really an award for all the medical fraternity, men and women who work above and beyond like everybody, doing locum work, for example, to relieve others, especially in regional Australia. Recently, it was awarded to Brendan Farrell from the Burrumbuttock Hayrunners and Graham Cockrell from Need to Feed, again as representatives of a wider trucking community of Australian helpers who go the extra mile. And where would we have been in the drought, especially without the truckers? This year, we've selected Michael Kelly, who's a marine pilot in Sydney, not only for his contributions to our program, informing you of what's going on in the maritime area, but also for the work he and others are doing to help stranded seafarers, for example, who deliver your goods, but who for the last year have been stranded aboard ships, away from family, with no end in sight. So on behalf of all those helpers, and the women mostly who have knitted scarves and beanies for seafarers stranded on board ships, I don't know what that would be like. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine... And for those who go that extra mile, for those in the maritime industry, Michael Kelly is our Australian all over the year, for this year. And by the way, we have a wonderful stainless steel cylinder crafted by Terry Tisdale of Vox Engineering. They're out at Smithfield, I think, in, in Sydney, where the names will be... <laughs> Again, I've slipped up. Where the names will be engraved. We've got all the names. We just haven't got it to an engraver. And the names will be engraved on the side of this lovely, lovely... I'll, I'll, we'll put a picture of it up on our Facebook. And he's on the line, Michael Kelly. Good morning. Good morning, Macca. How are you? Oh, oh that was lovely what you just said. I'm, I'm very honoured. Very, very happy. Well, you've, you've done, uh, as uh, 
Graham Connors' song, uh, You've Done Us Proud. Um, and uh, the award's really for people who, you know, represent a wider community of people who are helping others. And as I just said, I, I can't, uh, can't think of what it would be like to be shut down on the ship for, uh, you know, six, nine, 12 months. I mean, I just, I'd, I'd go nuts, but, you know, maybe they're used to it more than we are. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I suspect they're very appreciative of the work and the ladies love to do it, don't they? You've got those stories. Oh, it's uh, just an example. Macca, um, this lovely lady, Daphne from Bargo, she rang me during the week and poor Daphne's just gone to a nursing home and she said, do you still need beanies, Michael? And I said, Daphne will always need beanies. And she said, I've got nothing to do in this rotten rotten room. And um, that's a true spirit. So all those ladies, um, oh, without them, this wouldn't happen. Yeah. Michael, tell me, is, it, is the situation, um, you know, um, lessened a bit, you know, are people getting off boats and or what's the story? Uh, the problem now is if they want to fly home from Australia, there's not enough seats on the aeroplanes and the airfares are through the roof. So the shipping companies, they don't want to get them off in Australia. So they force them to, to extend their contracts. So we're still seeing seafarers 14 months at sea. Um, so they've had two Christmases on board, some of them, which is... It's just not right. They're mentally strained and accidents are happening and it's, um, things aren't, aren't, as, aren't as good as we, we hoped. It's actually uh, nothing's really changed. I remember when I was a kid and I was down in Wollongong and there was a, um, a Japanese ship in the, in the port and they were off and they were at the local park, all these Japanese, and they couldn't speak English, but they were playing baseball. Um, but um, they can't do anything like that anymore, can they? That's, you, you can't get off your boat anywhere. No, that's um, just when I was at sea, just to go ashore, you did a six-week voyage just to feel the grass under your feet, just to get off the ship away from from your fellow fellow seafarers was, was a joy. Uh, they can't do that. So when they join a ship, they're, they're stuck on there for those 12 months maybe. Uh, so it's it's not right. We'd love to be able to take it to the park, local park, let them play cricket, kick a ball, be normal, but that's a long way off till, till they can get ashore. They give them packs, don't they, Michael? Like little toiletries and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, what what we do, um, Sister Mary and the Welfare Committee here, we raise money mainly through the wharfies, the, the tug the tug crews, um, our fellow pilots, uh, different groups give us gift cards, and we just take on a box of Mars bars, some socks, the beanies, and the joy on their faces is it's just amazing to give something so simple to them and and they actually say oh someone someone cares it's it's a, it's such a joy and uh we've just sister mary just ordered i think four thousand mars bars the other day which will <laughs> we'll get to the ships um any trouble is they melt in the car i've, I've <laughs> had that few issues so but um we still need beanies uh, i've had requests from captains saying um would you be able to get us some socks because my crew have holes in their socks and you could imagine 12 months on board, you would get holes in your socks. And and you don't realise it, but I mean, everything that we use here in Australia uh, often comes on a, on a boat, doesn't it? Most oh, things, you know, everything. I was just, we just did, we just did that uh, story earlier about um, shipping in the 1800s where they crashed into King Island and, you know, on board this boat was everything, including pianos. Well, every, but everything 
we get here in Australia, and I suppose they still bring pianos in, although we make some in Australia, but um, you bring everything and we just take it for granted. And these, these people who are, who are doing all that work on board ships um, have got the bum out of their trousers. And I suppose they love to get a, a, even something simple like a beanie on their head because they think, well, someone cares about us. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an industry people don't know about. Uh, they just, as you said, take for granted. They'll, they go to Woolworths or Myers and their iPhones and iPads are there. Um, without shipping, the world would come to a grinding halt. And, and our economy, you talk to the Port Hedland pilots and Gladstone pilots, um, without ships, we, we'd have nothing. We wouldn't have an economy. Yeah, Michael, look, congratulations. You're our Australian all over the year. Your name will be engraved as soon as I've been saying this for two years to try and get everybody's name put no. on the side of this little thing. But um, we will do that and uh, you can... Yeah. You can uh... Thanks, Maka. That's, 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 that's probably the best award I've got. And I've got to thank my wife and kids for me disappearing, going to buy phone cards and, and <laughs> doing... Yeah, I'm always doing bits and pieces but i got to thank all the ladies and if they can keep the beanies coming because the ships are running to most run to china as you know and it's quite cold in china at the moment yeah i'll say and, and i was listening to maureen this morning whistling one of my first ships i was painting the the monkey island i was whistling away and the captain ripped into me he said don't you dare whistle on my ship son so <laughs> it's the only place you're not allowed to whistle is on a ship yeah, bring, really bring bad luck. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, that, yeah. Whistling up a storm. It's like bananas. One bloke used to ring us and tell us you can't have bananas on board. A, he was on a fishing trawler, but yeah, there, yeah, that's bad luck as well. No, but great listening. Thanks for your support, Maka. It's a and, pleasure. Um, you're putting um, the seafarers a, a smile on their face. Good on you. Good on you, Michael. All right. Talk thanks, to you soon. Maka. Thanks, everyone else. Thank bye. you. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.